new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Dr. Black, how are you today? I'm good, Sean. I can't wait to talk to this next guest. Hopefully, you can give me some tips as we move forward in this life. Yeah, it's another uh, it's another really cool, interesting uh, individual that we get to speak to. And let me tell you about him. His name is Jonathan Asley, and he is a midlife dating and relationship coach. He helps women recognize and distinguish the difference between men who are emotionally unavailable from those who are truly ready for love. He is also the author of four books, Unlocking the Male Mind, Finding Love Online, Why Men Pull Away, Three Ways to Keep Him Close, and the new book, What the Heck is Self-Love Anyways. So uh, without further ado, you can find more on his website, which is jonathanasley.com. And uh, here we go. Here's Jonathan. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you both for having me. I'm so excited to be sharing with both of you today and your audience. Yeah, it's so interesting when I read your bio and you had so many different things when I looked at your webpage and stuff too that have come up and it's so interesting, the career choice you chose because you don't really hear it that often that someone sort of focuses all their energy to basically helping others find love and really distinguishing what love is. And then with your book that had probably has a lot of tips in it too. So could you go back to sort of tell us like <laughs> what made you go this? I don't think you went to school, did you? Was there, was, I don't think there was a class in university that said uh, how to be a midlife dating coach. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, thank you. And I think it happens by default for most of us. And I, I have a few contemporaries, uh, both men and women, but in particular men who have, um, chosen down this career path. My my journey started, well, let me even backtrack. Um, I'm of the, the baby boom generation and I was programmed to, you know, after high school, you know, go to college, after college, get a job, after getting a job or career, meet a girl, you know, get married, buy a house, start a family. And I had that programming in me and, and, I, and I followed it to a T and it didn't make me any happier. I wasn't over overly happy with my career. And I, I made a choice at a very young age with a person who's a fantastic person, but ultimately we weren't right for each other. And in 2005, I had two dramatic things happen. My wife or ex-wife now, and I decided to split. And literally in the same month, the company I'd worked for, and I spent 20 years in the insurance business, the company I worked for decided to lay me off. And, and I was making a quarter million dollars a year. So to lose a substantial job like that. And so not only was I losing my professional identity, I was also going through what can be sometimes one of the most traumatic events in a person's life. And, and I began online dating. At first, you know, like, right, I mean, literally, I moved out of the house. And the first thing I did was go online because I thought, oh, this is great because online was so brand new, you know, back in the in, in 2005, 2006, or at least it felt brand new, you could literally plug some, you know, exactly what you want, and someone would magically appear. And, and I did that. And I'll never forget. I had a, you know, my first date was in February of 2005, met a great gal had a fun time, but something wasn't right. And then a few weeks, few days later, I met another person, nice person, fun date, something wasn't right. And this was happening over and over again. 
And in one year, I had 100 internet dates. And I realized that the something wasn't right was me. I was already miserable going through the elements of divorce and was unhappy because professionally my life was collapsing. And that was really an awakening to a journey that really started to change my life because then I began to look at personal development and self-help as a, a, as a daily practice because I was so unhappy and miserable. But at the same time, I'm communicating with all these women online and they're asking me for, you know, I'm just, we're just talking to one each other. I was literally addicted to talking to women every single night. And I was having four or five hour conversations every single night. And they were then asking me advice. I wasn't even dating them. I was just, they were, we were just developing friendships. And they asked me how to help them improve their profile. And I just gave them perspective. And all of a sudden, my career was born. Hmm. Wow, that's so interesting. You're right. Like, it's not something that you consciously chose. It's like people wanted help and you were there. I think it's fascinating how you were able to step back and realize something was off about you, not that yeah. all the women were, were, you know, something wrong was with them. And I think it takes a lot of courage to look at your own life and to see your own flaws, because I don't see that a lot. in a lot of people I meet, it's uh, a lot of projection going on, a lot of people judging other people, and a lot of people don't take ownership for who they are in the interaction. So I'm guessing that's probably where you start off with a lot of people when it comes to dating, right, is figuring out who they are, and where they lack in a I guess, self-love. That's a great point. And thank you for recognizing that. I, I, I felt as though, you know, you know, the old phrase, what's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And, yeah. and that's what it felt like after a hundred dates. I'm like, where's something's not right. It's time to look in the mirror. And and if I can encourage anyone who's listening to this or just this is my message out in the world is to recognize that oftentimes when we point the finger to the outside world being the problem or maybe our past relationship or our parents and, and such, and, and certainly a lot of things can influence how we are as individuals, that finger being pointed, we have to remember, we, we can look at our hand and go, well, there's three fingers pointing back at me. And that's what I believe self-awareness is, is to recognize that we individually are the cause of our experiences. It may not feel that way. It may feel like outside forces are causing what's happening in our life. But the minute a person recognizes that the individual is the cause of their experiences, that I believe is the first step to awareness. Jonathan, what was it in you that you saw that maybe wasn't working or that you needed to kind of reevaluate and do some self-help and uh, introspective looking into kind of how, what, what that dynamic was for you? What was it that made you want to reevaluate? Thank you. You know, what came to mind as you asked that question was an experience I had while dating where I had a, a date with a woman. It was, I think it was the day after New Year's. So it was January 2nd and it was an evening. And for whatever reason we met, you know, on this date 
but I hadn't eaten anything the entire day. For whatever reason, I missed, I, you know, I don't typically eat breakfast. I missed lunch. I didn't have dinner. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is we went out for drinks and immediately I got drunk. And, and what ended up happening during the date ended up being a blur. And what happened the next morning when I reached out to her, kind of wanting to connect with her, she shared with me my belligerent behavior. And in that moment, I was completely embarrassed. And I had a choice because at first I wanted to, because I felt like I was being attacked. And my first reaction was, you know, defending myself. And then I go, you know, and then I looked within and I said, you know what, you were really most likely out of line. And that caused me to go, I want to show up in a different way going forward in my life. I want to show up with more integrity, more um, authenticity, more transparency. And keep in mind, I've been reading books like The Four Agreements and Untethered Soul and Return to Love that were all, you know, helped create this awareness. But it, was, it wasn't until I had that particular humbling event that really helped me become aware that I'm the instigator of what's happening. And I, I created that situation, even though I was being neglected, you know, and I did it by not eating, you know, so, and then drinking thereafter. So um, that was a pivotal moment for me. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, it's cool to see that, to look back and I'm guessing see and like reflect on how far you've come now what was your coping style prior to that? Because I'm guessing you're really about talking things through now, just the way I'm, I'm hearing you. Uh, how did you cope with life prior to maybe like what you figured out along the way to how to cope with uh, either relationship issues or uh, any other issues that come up in your life? Yeah, thank you. After my divorce and losing my job, my life started to take a tailspin. And interestingly enough, the dating was the was like, was like self-medication in a way. <laughs> it was like a drug to me. I was really addicted to the online dating high of that first meeting. I was I was very much a serial dater. I mean, that's how you get 100 dates then. And, and by the way, I had a lot more dates even after that. From 2005, and then what happened in 2008, uh, and I'm, I'm bringing this up in particular, is that I think most everyone will remember the market crash of 2008-2009. And I suffered deeply. I I got wiped out. And I got wiped out by a total of a seven-figure wipeout. And I was in my mid-40s. I had one point lived in a $2 million home when I was married. We we sold our house. That's how I was able to have that kind of asset. And and I was living at the beach and I was kind of day trading for a while. I wasn't working in the insurance world anymore, doing my dating, you know, online dating as my one addiction. When I financially got wiped out, my coping was not only online dating, it was drugs and alcohol. I literally was doing cocaine on a daily basis just to get by. And those things, drinking, you know, dating, and uh, drugs was how I coped. It was how I got by each day. And it wasn't until 2010 
that I really started to turn things around. And by the way, and I had to move in with my mom and dad at age 45. Um, and they lived in a retirement community. <laughs> so my parents were retired, living in a retirement oh. community. And I'm this tiny, And by the way, to come from a multi-million dollar house to moving in with your mom and dad, I mean, it's demoralizing. Yes. <laughs> and yet, I was still dating. <laughs> was there a lot of potential I mean, dating candidates at the retirement home? I imagine a lot of single ladies yeah. available. <laughs> there probably were. I didn't go down that route. But, but I was also being, there was a facade of myself because I, I knew in my core I was going to continually get rejected on some level. Mm. And what interestingly happened was it wasn't until a woman it was, I met a woman, it was, and this was shortly after beginning my dating coaching business of helping women. I actually started to promote myself professionally online, helping women with online dating profiles and helping them understand men in the process. But, and I built up a little bit of brand awareness through Facebook. Then I met a woman through Facebook and eventually through a dating site. And uh, she's a doctor. She had her own television show. We had some mutual friends. We went on a date and we had a great time. And, and I'm thinking she's going to reject me. And we went on a second date. And why this is so pivotal is during our second date, I guess I'd been talking about my parents a lot. And she goes, do you live with your parents? And guys, I was the deer in the headlights. Like I, I could either lie which would be out of integrity or, or, and, and I, and I'm, and I'm in great fear of being rejected. And I told her, yes. And interestingly enough, she didn't reject me in that moment, but we weren't in a relationship or anything, but I'd asked her, do you want to get together a few nights later to go to a movie? And she didn't say no. And every time I kept asking her to do something, she didn't say no. Now, just so you guys know, <laughs> She never had any intention of dating me. I just kept was being persistent on hanging out with her that we eventually became, we formed a relationship. And why that was so pivotal for me was I was at the lowest point of my life and yet someone accepted me and loved me even in my shame, even in my um, embarrassment. And it was an act of love on her part and it was a door opening to my own self-love because I can't, because I am not, you know, I didn't have to make, I didn't have to stick to this story that I have to be a provider protector to be in relationship. Yeah. That's, that's a very interesting statement and series of statements because you look at what online dating is. It, it's a very, superficial layer of what a person is and so everybody yeah. just like facebook is everybody's kind of showing their best and so yeah. you went through a lot of changes in your life you know being divorced and, and losing a lot of money in a job and a lot of changes so i can imagine your identity is, is kind of going through a lot of changes and, and you're probably feeling down and you probably yeah. may don't have the self-love that you kind of, you know, you're not at your best and feeling good yeah. about even your embarrassments, you know, instead you're, you're, you're kind of, uh, hiding them away because, you know, you're, you're meeting people who are doctors and whatever, and they're perfect. So you want to be at your best 
Um, yeah. But that's, that's, and, and that's fascinating because it seems like you kind of, uh, like you described, you, you know, you understood that it was like love, your own self-love that kind of needed to kind of happen, you know, where you're not embarrassed about living with your parents and you just, you know who you are as a person. Thank you. I, it was, it was an interesting dynamic because I, on some level, I don't want to give all the power away to her because of her acceptance. It was a, she actually, what she did best was mirror to me what she already saw inside of me. And, and, and in that mirroring, I got to be able to go, you know what? I am worthy. And so while there's a little bit of the, whether it's a chicken or the egg, whatnot, there was an element where I, I got to see that this is really about me because she, but the one, the beautiful thing she did is she never fed into my fears, but she also didn't enable me, which a lot of people do. So they can see, cause a lot of, for example, a lot of women could see a man, wow, he's down on his luck, you know, and I see potential in him and they'll enable that man in some way. And and by the way, and women are great at seeing potential within men. I mean, that's like one of their greatest gifts, right? She saw my potential, but she never enabled me. She kept pushing me and challenging me. Now, thankfully, we were kind of in the same profession because she was a relationship therapist. And we, we worked well together helping each other support each other in our dreams of helping people form healthy, happy relationships. And it took, it took my own self love, if you will, my self, my, what's not self-love, my self-confidence, my self-esteem, my self-reliance. It's all those pieces of self was beginning to emerge because I started to believe in myself and I didn't, I chose not to believe in the old story. I'm worthless. I'm worth something. And that was the beginning catalyst. Yeah. I think it's fascinating how I think even in our culture, we put so much praise on those who have a lot of money. And so it's like those who are the best people or those who um, people who say they love themselves the most, they have this a lot of money or they have a lot of security. So they feel like almost that they have it all. But I love what you're talking about is that, you know, you got all that taken away and it showed what was underneath it all because you didn't change because of the, financial crash you're like that with the money you just didn't really fully understand it or know it at that time and so for it to be taken away and for you to see this side of yourself and then pursue something greater i think is like the biggest lesson of this all is like sometimes when the world strips you of these things or things that we feel that make us are better in this world or make us feel more yeah. love we get to see the truth of how we see ourselves in the mirror without all that I think that's what uh, I'm really impressed with, that you saw that, you could see that, and you had someone around to show you that it's okay. You know, like, that's okay to, to be living with your parents or to, to be in this struggle, because this is life. And, you know, yeah. this is why we talk about this stuff on the podcast, because a lot of people just don't talk about this stuff in general. They sort of avoid it, as you're saying in Facebook and stuff. So, you know, like, great for you to, 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 to learn that, um, but then move forward and try to help others. And so could you talk a little bit about how you engage 
people finding new relationships after a divorce or even after uh, a death? Yeah, th- I want to I want to piggyback on something you said because, and, and I think this will lead into this question, is that I, I feel as though on some level we all have what I call a humbling event, something that humbles us, and because. You know, from birth, we, we start off as love and then we're conditioned by society. We're conditioned by our parents. We're conditioned on so many levels to, you know, to have walls and layers and, and barriers between ourselves and love and ego comes in here. And so in my particular case, I had that this big humbling event, which created a lot of micro humbling events, like I told you about, you know, drinking too much on that date. And so these humbling events were the catalyst to my awareness. And, and whether it's loss of a relationship, loss of a job, maybe even a loss of a loved one or whatever, those are opportunities to explore a deeper layer of awareness within oneself. And I'd like to think of an opportunity to shift to love. And so one of the messages that I've What's interesting, you know, when you shared my bio, you and, and I, I realized I have to rewrite my bio because I've written three other books that were related to dating and relationships that I almost want to throw away because, uh, and I'm sharing this with you because at first when I started to teach, when I became a dating coach, I was coming from at it from a place of ego and my own wounds. And so a lot of, of my the content was coming from a wounded place and and I was giving advice from that place. It was really the world according to Jonathan. Mm. And and I'm owning this now. I'm really now and it's because someone was reading I was doing an interview recently, someone was reading some chapters of my book and I kept saying, Well, I have a new perspective on that, which really means I don't agree with what I said before. Mm. <laughs> Did you have an example and, that you can give us? Yeah, so I wrote a book called Understand Men Now, The Relationships Men Commit to and Why, which is also known as Unlocking the Male Mind. And one of the in one of the chapters I recommended to the the reader that men should be putting out three times more effort than a woman in the initial stages of dating. In other words, for every three times he sends a text message, you should send a text message. And and because the uh, this concept that men have to work for it and men have to earn it, and what I realize is that's a one-sided way of looking at it because a, a really healthy relationship is two people showing up on the 50-yard line, equally giving effort. Now, effort could look different; it doesn't it doesn't have to mirror each other, but it's about equally putting effort. But in this book, I gave advice that was really kind of slanted that men are supposed to do more. Um, and that's a false belief. That was a false belief on my part at that time. Now, whether 50-50 effort is a, is a more accurate belief, I don't know, but I truly believe that a healthy relationship is stemmed by mutual effort. So a lot of dating rhetoric I gave in the past was based on ego way of dating and not a more healthier way of dating, which really led me to wanting to write the book about self-love. Um, this book was birthed on, from two reasons. One, it was, then the book is called What the Heck is Self-Love Anyway? It was birthed 
because um, I felt like a lot of dating advice and a lot of relationship advice was surface-based. In other words, it was based on, you know, you complete me kind of thing. Like we need another person to fulfill our happiness when it actually starts within. And it was also birthed because I had lost my 19-year-old son. It was a year, it was in July of 2018. And, and through that experience, it shifted a lot inside of me to want to, to really understand love a lot deeper, both for myself and others. And so I began writing about the concept of self-love and loving others. And within two months of his passing, I actually began the writing of the book and I published it nine months to the day of when he passed away. Because I'm a firm believer that it starts, love is the antidote to everything, and it starts from within. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to talk about uh, the loss of your son. Before we get there, I just wanted to ask mm -hmm. one more thing about uh, your books and your, um, your knowledge on what, what you've, obviously your life and what you've uh, written about. You yeah. know, we've changed a lot. Society's changed a lot over the last, even since 2006. Things are really moving at a, at a faster pace in terms of... Um, yeah. You know, progression and uh, men and women and equal rights, and and really changing the the, the narrative around uh, what it's like to treat women with respect and and vice versa. And you know, especially coming from a baby boomer generation, you get to see all this and see it kind of play out. Um, there's also a level of aspect, and as a man, uh, you know, I'd love to get your opinion on this. You know, when you hear about situations like men who turn to hating women. Are, are being malicious or violent or whatever. And you come across those situations, um, like for instance, the incel groups, what, what is it? What do you see in that? And, and, and what's the, what the feedback you're getting from women based off of maybe those situations? So that's a great question. I think, you know, men today, and, and we have to kind of segment, let me just share, because I work with what's the over 40 crowd. I, I call it midlife, which is, after baby making or before baby making years and before retirement kind of thing. I want to differentiate between the 20 year old and the 40 year old out there who's let's in the dating realm. And why I'm differentiating the two is, you know, when you're in your twenties, you're driven by testosterone. You're driven by, at least men in particular, are driven by testosterone, very goal oriented. I'm going to conquer the world. And then by the time you hit your forties, you know, you might have gone through a marriage, you might have gone through a number of relationships, and you might have had a humbling event or two happen in your life. Many people begin to, there, there's a reason why the, the term midlife crisis was, came about, because it's that shift in, in asking, my, asking oneself, who am I? And what begins to happen at this age, oftentimes, is many of our childhood wounds and of our past experiences start to unfold, start to surface. A lot of inner turmoil begins to surface and men's behavior can seem wonky to women in the relationship realm. Because many men are going through a lot of inner turmoil, inner uncertainty, um, doubts in their lives. Um, they might start to have physical changes testosterone levels in decrease, estrogen levels increase. And so their behavior might not seem very 
kind, gentle, altruistic or whatnot. And that's one of the things I've observed for them in the male population. So I, I tell women, most men are good people. They're just bad at the dating process. They're bad at, they're just, and by the way, women can be equally as bad. So I'm not, this isn't a men against women kind of thing. I'm just observing it in this context is that both men and women struggle to really create connection with one another. And that's the conversation that I talk into to that demographic is understanding that we're both we're, men and women are just human beings trying to do the best they can. And they might struggle at it because they might be going through a lot of pain on the inside. Yeah. And, and that goes back to when you have that, like you said, when you have that humbling moment, um, yeah. how do you react? And I, I example came to my head is, you know, uh, in the past I've occasionally had back injuries and, you know, it's, it's during those times when, you know, I have an injury, I'm laid out, can't move, not doing much is when I mo when that's the humbling moment for me because it makes yeah. me humble and appreciate health, appreciate when my body is physically able to do that. Um, but if I don't have like, if, if I don't have something to appreciate that can just kind of sit and fester. And I think, yeah maybe for some guys if they haven't had a positive experience with a woman or have dated someone that's a positive experience and when they're going through lulls or not meeting people if they don't that look, during that humbling moment if they don't have something to look back and say well i do appreciate when i was able to have let's say love with a woman or whatever then i think that can fester and turn into something really negative and and that can really uh you know, add to that type of hatred towards others and people. And yeah. then it can just lash out, you know, on online, or if you meet one or two women, and all of a sudden, you're, you're, well, I'm getting rejected. Well, that just goes back to kind of, you know, that type of feeling that you got. And I think that sometimes, um, that's obviously a problem. And I think, you know, obviously, self love, I think is probably connected a lot to, to these type of uh, situations. Oh, I, you are so right, spot on right there. There's an element where if, if we've had, for lack of a better word, a humbling event, or you might have been rejected on a date, and it happens once or twice, some people turn to becoming jaded or bitter. And in those moments or, in the, or their experiences going forward, a lot of times it will c come out in bad behavior. Even remember I said, shared earlier the way I kind of taught the dating, my dating advice came from my wound and it wasn't the healthiest advice I, I could have given at that time. It took a lot of what I call micro humbling events, <laughs> a lot of a micro things. And I will say it took the love of a person to recognize in me that helped me shift. And so it's one of the reasons why I'm a huge advocate for a compassionate way to approach the process, both for oneself and the others, because we don't know someone else's journey. That person that maybe had been hurt so many times might have become bitter and jaded when all they're really thirsty for is someone to love them. They're, now, I'm not here to even remotely suggest you should accept bad behavior. I'm an absolute believer in boundaries. So for that guy who's bitter and jaded, 
all he really wants is to feel love doesn't mean that you should be in relationship with them, but we can always send energetic love to the person who's hurting um, and send a lot of love to ourselves for making the next choice, hopefully for someone who truly at least isn't bitter or jaded or down on you know, that men are, men are women, you know, because a lot of people, both men and women can equally be jaded of the opposite sex. It's loving the process. It's loving people. It's, it's when we come from a place of loving that things will begin to shift. Absolutely. And one, one last thing. And I also think it's uh, realistic expectations because uh, yeah. I've met, I've met some men who, they come up to me and they say, what, uh, you know, friends, and they're like, what, what, you know, how do I do this? How do I, you know, meet women? I, you know, I, I'm having a hard time. And when I tell them what the, when they, when I ask them what, what kind of woman they're looking for, it's usually kind of like mostly based off looks and mostly on the higher end of, of, you know, really, let's say if you had a scale to 10, let's say, you know, nines and tens. And first of all, I, I think from the get-go, that's kind of wrong because you're already, you're setting yourself up because you're already looking at something that's kind of in the rarity anyways. Um, And then when you go out and reach out to those women who are, I guess, looking like how you want them to look at and they reject you, well, then you say, well, all women are kind of rejecting me. How do you navigate through that if if you do talk to men and say, well, you know, what are your expectations? That's a great question because our ego, and for for the men listening and the women listening, this you know, men are visual creatures. We are driven by looks, and and women are no different as well. They women, I think, have a little bit more, you know, are look have are, are come from the heart a little differently, and we come from the eyes, so to speak. I think for them, you know, the thing about expectations is the the word expect the thing is if we're looking from if we're looking at a partner based solely on looks as our belief that they are maybe quality or you know have a good heart or aren't wounded or that same thing in other words remember when you said earlier about there's the perception about when people have money they seem to have their life together well we know that's not true given how many celebrities commit suicide so so it's it's looks doesn't make a person and so for that man who's solely looking based on looks i invite you to go you know what there's a whole person there that's beyond the looks and what i think is most important is a person's heart and soul and coming from a place of of loving recognizing that we all have a personality and our personalities may not mesh with one another, but come from a place of love and not from a place of looks. I know that sounds very woo-woo, but I'm just putting it out there and just put that in your consciousness and try it on for size. Yeah, no, I like that. And like the other reality too is beauty fades. You know, as people age, they like that all fades away and you're left with who the person is underneath it all. And that's who you want to be with if you're looking for um, a, a long-term relationship. That's the thing that, yeah. you know, brings out the best in you is who the person is, not how they look. 
So, you know, I'm, I have something to say. Can I share something about yeah, that? Yeah. It just relates to my mom and dad. So, my parents were married 66 years before my mother passed away. And, um, and my dad, devastatingly handsome. My mom, a debutante. You know, my dad was a World War II commander of a destroyer in the Navy and stuff like that. So, they look like a perfect couple. And after I think my, my sister was born, my mother put on. 200 pounds. I think she at one point she was 300 pounds. And, and at age 60, my dad's like Sean Connery handsome and my mom's overweight. And years later, I asked my dad, I go, you know, did you ever cheat on mom? And, and I felt like he was giving the, his answer was very sincere. Because I said, did you ever cheat on my mom? Because she got heavy. And he goes, you know what? I, I always, I always look at your mom like I first saw her. And even though he can be considered handsome out in the, you know, the world and she's overweight and unattractive, what he was really saying is, I always, I look at your mom's heart. That's what matters most to me. And he was that way until the day she passed away. And so, like what you said, looks do fade, but a heart, you know, beautiful heart remains constant, in my opinion. Did your dad ever end up dating after your mom died? You know, he's 90, this just happened last year and he's 94. And so <laughs> I hope to God he doesn't. Never date. too late. Never too late. No. Well, well, but he does flirt with all the women at the, at the assisted living facility. So let me just say that. <laughs> it's the spot I, I hear. Um, you know, and, and I think what you're saying is right. Look, people have layers and they have sides to them. And you really have to incorporate all of them because you know, like you said, looks are one aspect, fine, but like, you know, there, there's a person's mind and their heart and, you know, the things they talk about and the things you have connected with uh, together. And when you enter into a relationship and you go through years with a person, if it's just physical or looks, that those all fade. They, they, de they definitely yeah. do. But the other ones actually grow. So uh, I think ultimately... Um, and, and I think a lot of these are, like you said before, they kind of stem from how you grow up and what your expectations are for life. Like, oh, I want a car, I want a good job, I want a really, you know, uh, trophy wife, I want this, and this is how my life's going to be. And, and I think that having those, you know, firmly uh, set in your mind can actually set you up for rejection because, especially in 2019, the dating world's not like that necessarily. Uh, not to say that some people don't seek that and, and don't end up finding those what they find. But I think for the most part, when you look at the trends and you're meeting new people, um, it's better for you to kind of keep an open mind and say, OK, well, who I am, who is this person? Let me try to get to know all aspects of them. Yeah, you you nailed it right there. And, and you know, expectations oftentimes get the better of us, and which is why I'm a huge proponent of discussing what I call alignment. And that is choosing people who are aligned in your values, choosing people who are aligned in your lifestyle, choosing people that are aligned in your emotional maturity. And then when you add chemistry to the mix, then you have the makings for a potentially great relationship versus our, our dating process today is very attraction chemistry based, which you know, is which I which I also believe is ego based, which is you know expectation based, versus really coming at it from a more purposeful uh, way of going. 
hey, do we share the same values with one another? Because a lot of people don't. <laughs> I mean, we're a very, United States, we're a very divided country, and we can look at politics and religion as being an example of that. So, so first, do we kind of share the same values? And I don't mean the value of trust, integrity, and honesty. I mean the deeper values. And then do our, are our lifestyles compatible with one another? There are a lot of people that date that lifestyles are so incompatible with one another and they're waiting for the other person to make a change in their life. And the real biggest issue in dating and relationships today centers around emotional maturity. And the reality is vast numbers of human beings don't have the emotional maturity to be in a relationship because they haven't learned how to communicate their thoughts and feelings effectively. They haven't learned how to uh, have conflict resolution in a, in, a, in a harmonious way or at least a, a beneficial way to the outcome of the bigger picture, which is the relationship itself. And a relationship is a separate entity. And this is where a lot of people get mixed up because they're thinking that there's you and a me. No, the relationship is a whole separate entity. Yeah, I can see too how relationships may end just due to um, a passing of someone. I know after a child's death, um, it is common for relationships to end just because it's yeah. very hard to deal with those emotions while maintaining that relationship. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, there's, there's a lot of work that goes into building something strong and communication, as you're saying, is, you know, is one of the most important things to, um, maintain the, the, the relationship. I'm curious, you mentioned, so your mom died and then your son died and they both died in the same <laughs> year. Is that right? Uh, seven months apart. Yeah. Wow. So could you talk about that journey and. I know like it helped you write that book, but that's a lot of loss from two important people in your life. Well, technically almost three. So my, my mother passed away in November of 2017 and, and my mother, it was very quick. She, we, she went in the hospital and three weeks later she was gone. And, and in that experience, my mother represented, you know, one half of the rock of my existence. My mother and father were the rocks, if you will. I got a chance to say goodbye and 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 I also knew that you know what she was 88 years old she lived a she she will openly admit that she lived a very blessed life and so it was the natural timing of things so while I mourned it I also looked at it as like hey she lived a great life and I got a chance to say goodbye and then bam 7 months later I lose my son to um, an accident and I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. It came out of left field. It was, um, it doesn't go with the natural order of things. And, and in that moment, I mean, every fear I ever experienced, because as, when I, when my, both my boys were born, my greatest fear would be something happened to them. And I spent 19 years, he was 19 years old when he passed away, but between him and his brother, 20 plus years, worrying about something happened and then bam, it happened. And 
in that experience, because my mother, I, I kind of accepted it, you know, with, you know, just because it was the natural order of things. In this moment, it was so out of the blue. And I made a conscious choice to go, I'm going to grieve with love. I, I don't know where it came from, but I said, I'm going to grieve with love. And what that means is I'm going to love myself. I'm going to be, you know, find a way to embrace this experience from a place of love, of acceptance. And so, um, and I, I don't know really, I, I may not be articulating this well, guys. So, uh, you know, please forgive me. But I, all I remember was, how am I just going to love in this process rather than choosing fear and anger? And, and not that I haven't felt, you know, anger, depression, some of those denial, all those experiences that they say you go through in the stages of grief. But I said, I'm just going to grieve with love. And so the first thing I did was go, he may not be here on a physical realm, but he's here on a spiritual realm. And I made a commitment to believe that and to embrace that. And interestingly enough, on the, the day after he passed away, I was walking to my place and these yellow butterflies or a yellow butterfly just walked or went past me. And then the next day, a yellow butterfly kept following me. Now, I never noticed butterflies where I live, you know, for the five years prior. But all of a sudden, this yellow butterfly was following me. And I live on the third story of my condo complex. And two days later, this yellow butterfly was floating by my place. And I said, that's my son letting me know he's okay. And whether that's true or not, that's what I believe. And so I felt as though I was starting to get all these signs that he was here. He was here. And I can say that while I've gone through pain and hurt and missing him and everything, I also embraced another possibility that he's just, he's, you know, he's not here in the mortal form, but he's definitely here in a spiritual form. And that's allowed me to navigate this with a lot more compassion for myself and, and compassion for him as well. Yeah, you know, a lot of people sort of say that about, you know, um, their loved ones being around them and that gives them a lot of comfort. Were you spiritual before he died or was that something you took up after his death? Interestingly enough, I see to me, the word spirituality means a discovery of self. And I would say I had begun a journey of self-discovery. And interestingly enough, I had just started to do a daily study group in A Course in Miracles, just, you know, probably a couple months prior. And I was doing a daily, you know, teleconference every morning with a group of people. And we had just been talking about death literally weeks before. I was like, wow, was I being prepared? I didn't know it at the time, but I was being prepared for this because I allowed myself to shift my perspective around death. And what was interesting, my son had uh, had a couple seizures prior to him passing and, and I had to experience worry and I made a choice not, I, I kind of said, let go of worry. Okay. Whatever's meant to happen is meant to happen. And then it happened. And I'm like, because all of my worry didn't, wasn't going to change his outcome. His outcome was going to happen. Um, but I began this practice prior 
but it's become amplified since his passing. And when I say the word spiritual, I don't mean the words religious, and I don't necessarily mean it woo-woo. I just look at spirituality as a journey of self-discovery to a different way of looking at things. Let me just say that, too. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I can understand that. I, I feel that as well. Um, I, you know, I'm just thinking back when you said that uh, when, you're, when your uh, son was growing up, that you know you would always worry about them and it made me really think and and I felt that because you know I I myself don't have any children but you know when I'm around let's say my brother and my nephew I you know you can kind of put your shoes into their shoes and say you know yeah Mm -hmm. I would I can understand that there's as a parent you know you love something so much someone so much and you know it's a part of your life and you 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 care deeply for them for their safety i get a bit a bit of a taste uh, of that with my dog and i've mentioned that before you know he's he's yeah he's uh that's my son and i used to a lot more have these kind of thoughts about his death and then that would kind of scare me and and put me in a state of um fear and you know and and then i can just imagine now that what it's like with children and your own you know having your son and and die before you and going through that with all the emotions um must have been difficult as well um and again when we talk about faith it it doesn't it's not necessarily religion um but but it, it's still it's a it's a chance that you take but i think that you know it's it seems like it's it's the more positive option because there's hope that's attached to it as well. You almost can't have one without the other. So I think that like yeah. you know moving forward in order to grow and continue to live, I think that's an important aspect that you mentioned. Well, the, I you know it's interesting because I know one thing my son would want for me. He would never want me to be sad, and so like I know that. And so I had a choice because I could choose to grieve through a lot of pain. I could choose to, and by the way, I don't mean any disrespect to anyone listening that has suffered loss and is feeling pain. Um, I just know he would never want me to suffer, you know, for a long period of time. Um, I know he wouldn't want me to suffer one day. Um, and so I feel like, you know, I do miss him and there are moments where I'm feeling, you know, the loss of him, but I don't have to choose to go down that road for a lot on a, on an emotional roller coaster that takes me down the realm of suffering. And if I can encourage, you know, in fact, I'd like to encourage those that are feeling that suffering to know that your loved one would never want you to feel that experience. And to piggyback on, you, you know, you know, when you're talking about your, your pet, your dog, you know, however, you know, whether it's a child, a parent, an animal, whatever it is that we, we care about deeply, you know, when that loss occurs, it's, it's almost like a little death of ourselves. And you were saying before with nieces or nephews, you know, there's this natural element where we want to protect children. We want to protect, you know, there's, I think, an innate desire to protect those that we 
have raised, if you will. So you raised your dog. There's this natural inclination to want to protect them from harm. And yet, I think it's also important that we recognize that interesting, you know, I had my mother and my, my son pass away. My mother, natural order of things, 88 years old. You have a dog that lives to be 15, 16, you know, you go, wow, that's like beyond what most animals, you, this is the natural order of things. Yeah. When a child passes away, we say that's not the natural order of things. And yet it is. Children die every day. You know, elderly people die every day. Pets die every day. Relationships die every day. Loss isn't inevitable. And so, and I'll share, I had a dream from my son that happened um, several months back. And he said, uh, he claimed, came to me clear as day. And he said, dad, be, I'm first off, be grateful. He goes, I'm in a place of light and love. And I just want you to be grateful for that. So anytime you hear about someone passing, Choose gratitude because we're already in the light, is what he said to me in this vision. In other words, he was trying to say, you don't need to suffer. It's okay because we're, we're you know, you're on your journey doing the things you're supposed to do for your own awareness. I'm already in that place of love. Be happy for me. Wow, that's beautiful. Were you, when you had that dream, were you not in a good place like, i'm just really curious to or were you like thinking about things and and where he was um because usually when those dreams happen there's sometimes a reason why they're saying it to the dreamer yeah so i so it was a month before that vision um whether i call it dream or vision i'm going to use both for this context but uh it was the month before i i remember just being it was early morning it was around 4 a.m. I was just in that state of consciousness and unconsciousness. And he came to me in a vision. He says, I'm ready to talk to you. And then a month later was when I had this vision where, and I was in actually a state, I was in a, I was in a very um, sacred space when this happened. And I was doing a deep meditation when this happened. I was, I was in such a meditation that it was kind of crossing between consciousness and unconsciousness when this vision came so i was actually oh and i'd set an intention before i did this meditation i said connor if you have a message for me please you know share it with me so um but i was intentionally going to a, a deep place of it wasn't like i went to bed sleeping i went into a deep meditation and then that vision came interesting so it may not have been a dream per se, because you may not have been asleep. I was really quasi, I, I felt like, you know, you know, in the moment, like early morning where you're in that like twilight sleep, I felt like that was the place I was in at that moment. It was, the, it was, it was the, it was kind of a crossover between deep sleep. I mean, because I wasn't in a deep sleep, but I wasn't fully awake. It was like that mm -hmm. in-between space. So maybe like a stage one or stage two, that's like the, the low levels of sleep. That's so interesting. Yeah. I love the message either way. And um, I'm guessing it provided you said some comfort to, to hear that and to see your son. What what did he look like? Was he the age he was when he when he died? 19? You know, I don't recall having it. It, it wasn't like a, it was even though I 
I saw him. I, I saw him like in the form of light. Mm. I saw it more as an energy. It was more of a feeling than a, than something I could describe with my eyes. It was, it was maybe the, maybe I felt the echo of him, like from a visual perspective. It was his, he was, he was like, and by the way, I'm fumbling because this is hard to put into words, guys. Okay. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard to describe because it was both a feeling and a visual and everything. And, 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 it, you know, it's hard to put in words. I mean, I felt like he was his age, but there was a, a level, he was his age, 19, but there was something so much deeper to him than his mortal body. I, I don't know how to describe it. Well, I think you're doing a good job because you say like it's about <laughs> it's a dream, which is very difficult in itself. And it said there's this light and you said it wasn't really a, a, a visual, it was this feeling and yeah. hearing this stuff. And I think that's just amazing. It's amazing you're able to to have that experience for you. Has Have you ever asked your son or um, his mother if they've ever had a dream of him? I've His mother has said no. And, and his brother, I don't believe it has. And I, I think now this might be a judgment on my part, guys. So, you know, I'm a, a projection, if you will. I feel as though I've allowed myself to open the door to the other realm much more than my, my ex or my son, partly because they don't do any type of personal development, self-help, spiritual type of work. So I and I know she feels a little frustrated because when I share these experiences, she can I can feel a little bit of her sadness and like, well, why isn't he talking to me? And my feeling is he's talking to everybody. And so I just think it's it's being open and receptive to it is the key. So I've allowed my channel to be, you know, like my frequency is set. Hey, you know, I'm open to hearing whatever you have to say. And I get messages from him literally on a daily basis. Now, I'd like to share with your group what this is because there's something uniquely specific if, if you're interested. Absolutely. Uh, so my son's nickname was Salty or Salt. And, and when he passed away, I shared a memorial, you know, like Facebook post with him. And I've had thousands of people write me sharing their, you know, sympathies and condolences and that sort of thing. But I made it public, his nickname, Salty. Ever since then, I've been seeing Salty Crew t-shirts, Salty Life t-shirts. And uh, I mean, I mean, Salty is everywhere. And then people, other people start seeing Salty out there. And they, I mean, I'm talking strangers will take a photograph of someone's t-shirt and send me an instant message through Facebook or post it on their page. I'm talking this happens daily, and this has been over 400 days since he's passed. It happens at least three or four times a week. And in my world, that's him passing a message on to me, letting me know, hey, he's on my thoughts, or I'm in his thoughts, or, or something. And so, hey, this could be a total rationalization on my part, or how I'm choosing to see it is him passing messages. And guys, it happens almost every day, if not every other day. You know, I, we, we hear that a lot here in the podcast. And 
when I look at that, I see it's a continuing bond for sure. And it's providing you comfort. So like at the end of the day, yeah. I think it's amazing. You get that confirmation that he loves you and he's thinking about you kind of thing um, over and over again. Because I think in loss, one of the one of the big issues is the sense of how it affects our own uh, self-identity. And, yeah. you know, for you to continue to hear these messages, it helps you as a caring father, know that he's okay, but you're also that you're still loved. And, you know, when, when you lose a child, I can only assume that, you know, your identity is wrapped up in that child. That's why you worry about it so much, right? Like it's, it's yeah. part of you. And when that dies, there is that, that, that hole that, that you have to fill with love, as you're saying, and this stuff helps that and helps you move forward with that. So I think it's great that you're, you're having these experiences and you're using them in a positive way uh, to then help others and, and talk about this stuff with others as you move forward. Yes, I, I thank you. And I, and I share, by the way, I have a very public Facebook page because of my professional life. And because I've shared so much publicly about the experience, and there's a lot more that we couldn't do in this, you know, on a, in a podcast, but that I've shared, I've had so many people reach out to me and say, wow, what you shared made a difference in my life just whether it's the, this story or a different story or something of how you're, how you're coping, how you're moving through this. And, and that's what I feel like I'm here to do is I'm just here to share how I'm navigating this experience. And, and if that, if that can help someone else navigate it with maybe a little more ease and grace or acceptance or love or compassion, that's what I'm here to do. I'm not here to sell someone on some big gigantic coaching program so I can make a bunch of money and fly in a jet. I just want people to have less suffering in their life because if, if every human has less suffering, we all benefit from that. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's so true. And I'm glad you're raising, I'm glad, first of all, I'm glad you shared your loss online to your followers. I think, and your experiences because it helps raise awareness and normalize the grief experience. And because yeah. in our culture, we tend not to talk about it too much, especially on social media. So thank you for doing that because it just allows people to feel like what they experience is normal too, and to help them out through their suffering. So I'd like to thank you for that. And the other thing I wanted to sort of share too was the, uh, you talked about a little bit about the dreams and what you felt um, helps predict having dreams. Um, versus like other people who don't and I actually did a research project on that for my PhD. And what was interesting mm. was it wasn't spirituality um, that did it or it wasn't like anything else. The main predictor was the amount of, of dreams people usually recall in general. And so what it really was saying is that people who recall more dreams tend to remember these types of dreams more often. And so mm. it's really about dream recall than anything else. And so I think, so what it's saying to me is that a lot of people are probably dreaming of the cease. They're just not remembering it. And that's okay. And there's ways to improve that. But I think it's interesting how you said your son hasn't had one and, and neither has um, his mother. And so, you know, like, I wonder if it's that. I wonder if they're just not dreaming um, as frequent as maybe you are that's doing it. And I'm guessing too, you have to be open to it as you're saying, open to wanting yeah. that kind of dream. I, you brought up something that I, I'd love to share. And that is I actually, before I go to bed, I set an intention go, Hey, I want to remember my dream when I wake up. Mm -hmm. Like I actually say that to myself before <laughs> I go to bed. Oh, I, I, I create 
an intention of, you know, or just asking God or universe, help me remember my dream. And, and, and by just even setting that intention, I find I'm a little bit more attuned. You know, a lot of people would say immediately write down your dreams. And I mean, there, I, I do believe there is a way to tap into it if we're, if we set the intention and really devote from a conscious perspective to honing that skill of remembering the dream. I do believe that's possible. I think it wasn't, it, uh, it wasn't Freud. It was the other guy um, who specialized yeah. in it. I can't, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he was like, he can remember you know, like he, I, so there's probably, I think if, if we really choose to want to go down that road and I do it peripherally guys, I mean, I don't do it that much. And, and partly, I'm okay now with Connor being passed. So I don't feel like I have to tap into him anymore like I used to um, for, for me to, because I'm in a place of acceptance. I'm in full acceptance. Does it hurt at times? Absolutely. Do I miss him? Absolutely. But I'm in full acceptance. And so um, I want to try to taste and experience other things in life. And, and I will ask him for help. Like I'll, I'll reach out to him all. I just say it, you know, I'll just ask him for advice all the time, but I'm not, I don't necessarily am setting as much intentions around the dreams as I used to, but I will tell you, I do say, Hey, help me remember my dream when I wake up, just setting that intention. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was just picking up on one thing you said that I, you know, um, I don't, um, you don't need to think about them again. Or you don't need to him oh. to visit you necessarily. Oh well, I guess okay. And let me clarify that. I felt as though when I did those visit, when I had those visitations from him, at first the first one kind of came out of the blue when he says I'm ready to talk, and then I set some intentions to kind of tap into it through deep meditative sleep and really going deep into relaxation. Um. I don't feel the need to do that any to do that as yes, frequently yes. is maybe a better way to put it. Yeah, I don't, and I don't like it's not. I don't go to now. I don't go to bed thinking, oh, I have to connect with Connor. You know, I mm -hmm. don't say it as an intentional thing because I I felt like I got a lot of nourishment out of what happened. But if I choose to do it, I could go and do it whenever I want. I do believe I could do that. Yeah, that's very interesting to me because I have heard things like that before. And Joshua, you can step in. Um, but I think that when, when, when people get some of these grief dreams, it's, and if it's, especially if it's positive, sometimes it quenches that thirst and it gives you what mm. you need moving forward. And yeah. it might even almost improve in significance. And then I think I've heard people say that, you know, I got the dream. I don't necessarily need another one or something. And I think that's what it is. It's a, it adds to that relationship. It grows and it gives you what you need moving forward, which is amazing. I'll tell you what just came up for me as you said that. And I think you nailed it because I didn't give it really any, I didn't have any awareness around this till just now. In a way, when I had that deep visitation from him, it was almost like a closure piece. Like with, when my mom passed, I got to say goodbye to her you know, before the morphine took over, we got to say our goodbyes in a way, not that there was a goodbye. It was when Connor and I had this connection, 
but there, there's an almost feeling of closure that I, I believe I experienced. Because ever since then, in the three or four months since that deep visitation, I've been more at peace ever since. And, you know, I, I, but I, by the way, I went through the one-year anniversary of his passing. And that day, I was really kind of a wreck for a couple of days. But I'd say I've been really at a fair amount of peace because maybe what that represented was closure. I don't know. I'm just, I'm saying that as a hypothesis, not as a fact. Okay. <laughs> no, that's actually what's, what happened with uh, my dad. I was able, he died very suddenly and unexpected. And okay. I had, a, I had a dream. I was able to say goodbye to him and that I loved him. And that provided, mm. and I, when I woke up, my grief was changed. Like it, I wasn't in that deep sorrow that I was prior to bed. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I definitely understand and get what you're saying is it, it changes something inside those last words or just seeing them one more time. And, and it just it, it helped with the grief process in many ways, which yeah. what you're saying is acceptance is the hardest thing. And this is like surrender to what what is and what just happened and yeah. not fight it. But just you see it. And then you said you go into the gratitude of what you've experienced. But to really sit with that and and to accept it all, it is a process. And these experiences or visions definitely can help us out get to that place um, because it is a difficult place to get to on your own. Yeah. The one thing I've come out of this is that it's just a, le a greater level of, of gratitude, you know, for life. I, I think, you know, loss really ch puts things in perspective. And, and that's the biggest gift I got from his passing was now choosing to live life more from a place of gratitude more from a place of appreciation and doing my best not to take any day for granted and to recognize that whenever I have friction in my life, it's usually because I'm not in the loving. I'm not either loving myself or I'm not loving people. And if there's a message I could share with everyone is that that was the gift I got was a, a re was a better understanding of loving myself and others. And I, by the way, every morning I say it a hundred times, I'm here to love myself and others. I say it every morning when I'm making my bed and making my coffee, I repeat that a hundred times. And because that is what I, brings me the most peace. That's beautiful. No, it really is. And, I'm, and you're, it's interesting because you got to continue to work at it even though you love yourself, there's everything around you that's almost trying to get you to hate yourself, <laughs> to be a better consumer and everything. And so you have to remind yourself every day. And actually, that's one reason I uh, personally, I don't say say that as frequently as you do. <laughs> but yeah. what I what I do do is I try to wear red and red symbolizes that to me is to remember to love mm. myself. Um, yeah. And so it's like my own little thing to my own mantra almost as I wake up in the morning to start it off right and to then be able to pass that love on to others who are suffering as as you cross paths so you know I think it's great what you're doing and the journey you've on like thank you for being so honest with everything you've dealt with through so the the coping the struggles living with your parents you know a lot of people could probably <laughs> relate to that and then also where you've come now and so yeah. I'm guessing do you still live with your dad or no 
Oh, no, no, no. Uh, no, I, I got my own place about, uh, let's see, it's been over six or seven years. I, um, no, because when I, I actually built a successful dating coaching business, I, I'm actually overlooking the ocean right now and have a great ocean view. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, my father actually, real quickly, because remember you said I lost my mother, my son. I, my father moved back to his home country. My Both my parents were from Istanbul, Turkey. So my father moved back at, at age 93. He's now 94 because he wants to die in the country he was born. So I may never see my father again. I mean, I do plan on going, but he's 94 and anything could happen. But I lost three significant people in my life, literally. And I'll, I'll share, the reason why I'm sharing this with you is I, I had to really come to the realization that my mother and father represented my rock on some level. They represented anchor. And my son represented my responsibility of protecting, protecting what was mine, if you will. In other words, a piece of my flesh. And what I've kind of come to realize is that I'd always given my power away. In other words, my mom and dad are here to protect me. I'm here to protect my son. And what I gleaned from this now is, is, a, is to recognize it's not about protecting myself or being protected. It's about nourishing my own soul. And so I've been on a journey of, when I say self-discovery, it's, it's, it's really my own sovereignty, my own awareness and feeling complete as a person and being able to give to others and receive from others. But I've really, and that's why I wrote the book, What the Heck is Self-Love? Because you know, like when you're getting on the airplane, they tell you about the oxygen mask is to put it on yourself first. That's what I'm learning in this experience of life is how to put the oxygen mask on myself. And that's, and, and I just want to encourage others to do the same. That's a great example. I like that. Because they, what they say is, you know, you can't take care of your child or the person next to you unless you yourself put on your mask. And that's yeah. it's a perfect, perfect uh, analogy for self-love because, you know, it's, if you don't love yourself, it's very difficult for you to then extend that love to others and those around you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Our last question we like to ask on a podcast is if you could have a dream tonight of someone who's, uh, who's passed away, uh, who would that be and what would that dream look like? Wow. Uh, I wasn't expecting this. So um, do you know the first thing that came to my mind? I know this sounds crazy. Well, not crazy, but I'd love to have a, I'd love to have a conversation with Jesus. Mm, wow. And because, because, and let me share with you why, and I'm not a religious person, but Jesus to me represented what love was like in human form. Like just mm -hmm. being what he represents to me is empathy, compassion, um, and, and even he represented a fierce warrior inside of him because he was very strong in his convictions. Oh God, there's one other person now that popped in my head to piggyback from him. And the second, oh, can I bring up two? Of course, <laughs> yes. So, so, so the next incarnation of Jesus to me was Mr. Rogers. And uh, there's a new movie out, uh, uh, about him, but Mr. Rogers represents that to me as well as an absolute incarnation of being a giver of love without expecting anything in return. So if I could have two dreams, it would be them. 
because this is kind of the path I want. This is where I feel drawn to move towards. How can I give love? How can I be an extension of love? How can I both love myself and others in that capacity? So I'd want to have a three-way conference call like the three of us <laughs> with those two guys. <laughs> I like that. I like that imagery. You're at your desk or whatever, at your home, and you're having this uh, on your internet, and then two two things pop up for your video conference. You have Jesus on one end and <laughs> Mr. Rogers on the other. That's pretty yeah. cool. And, and I'm, what I what's interesting about you picking Jesus was the uh, the oxygen mask thing because he mentions that in in uh, in the scriptures how like he was saying you got to take the log out of your own eye before you can help someone take the log out of theirs and mm. that's and that's yeah. exactly what you're saying is that you gotta you know sell, you gotta work on yourself first so you can help those yeah. around you and so what a cool dream never would have expected you to say that. But uh, yeah, and and I just actually watched that uh, Mr. Rogers documentary. It's really amazing. Yeah, it really is. And if there's if there's just there's something about the humanity of Mr. Rogers and the absolute pure place of love he came from. And so, thank you. I'm sorry. I just I could talk about that for our next hour. <laughs> what question would you ask them? Oh, that's an interesting one. I. I, I don't, this came to my head. How did you do it? Like, and I mean to say is how did you shift from your ego to love? How did you shift from fear to love? Like in other words, if, and, and I'm not, I don't know what they'd say, but I, I, I just, how did you do it? How'd you let go of your ego and fear and how did you tap into love? Yeah. Hey, that's, that's a, my opinion, one of the biggest challenges in life. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know you can literally ask Jesus, "What would you do in the dream?" Yeah, <laughs> like, we don't have to have a bracelet, <laughs> don't have to pose the question in reality, and uh, you know, again, it's creative and it's 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 something that uh, you can play with, and I love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jonathan has been uh, amazing, and again, uh, a lot of great information, a lot of cool. Um, you know, we had a lot, really good conversation on various topics. And uh, so many things that to absorb and, and to bring up and, uh, you know, even just when you were talking about humble moments and, and um, incorporating self-love and reevaluating yourself first before uh, you go out into the world and say, well, what's wrong with that other person? Well, what's wrong with me and how can I fix myself first? Which is, you know, these yeah. are all really great tips for uh, men and women, whether they're dating or even, you know, going through. Uh, the grief process and all that that they can really incorporate into their lives um could you share with us anywhere where people can reach you and find your books oh great uh thank you so um again my name is jonathan asley last name spelled a-s-l-a-y my website jonathanasley.com also uh if you type in self love the book com selflovethebook.com that takes you straight to amazon uh where my book what the heck is self-love anyway is um is uh for sale and um and actually just google my name i've got a youtube channel where i shoot videos uh on a regular basis i have a membership program for people that for predominantly women who want to improve their love life called midlife love mastery. So just Google my name and I'm sure a gazillion things come up. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for giving us that out and listeners, uh, you know, check them out and see if, uh, you know, see if you can, uh, 
check out his website and enjoy his books and, and get some uh, knowledge on that. I got a question. If someone's under 40, do you still help them out or is it only people who are over 40? No, actually, interesting enough, uh, I think getting more people under 40 and I'm actually, and let me just say this to your audience, I so want to help people before <laughs> you know, they hit 50, 60 and above. Like the sooner one begins a journey of self-love, the I believe the happier their life is. So yes, I will work with people below 40. I just happen to talk to that demographic because my background has been divorce, which is alimony, child support, visitation rights, all the emotional traumas that happen. So I can talk into it better, you know, but no, I love to talk to younger people because get started on a personal development path sooner rather than later. Excellent. All right. So, uh, Please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, we added a donation button and there are per perks to those who donate. Uh, if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram. Instagram at Grief Dreams and at the Grief Dreams podcast. So check those out. And as well, if you have a chance, please rate us on iTunes. Uh, with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.